0: It's 4 o'clock on a Monday, and you know what that means, don't you? It's time for another exciting episode of Taxi TV Live. Woohoo! Yes, and all the zeros and ones are going to the right places. We are live, and I'm extremely happy to uh, welcome our guest today, Mr. Trevor Fletcher, who is the vice president and general manager of my alma mater, Criteria Studios. <laughs> And that's the, all the applause you have to put up with today, Trevor.
1: <laughs> I'll take any kind I can get. <laughs> Thank you. Happy to be here. Uh,
0: I'm glad to have you. Um, I actually met Trevor, <laughs> believe it or not, when he was a toddler. And his mom and I worked together. His mom was like studio manager. I forget what her official title was at, at Criteria in the mid-70s when I worked there. But she I was...
1: Think evil overlord.
0: Yeah, that's it. <laughs> or chief of sarcasm. Uh, yes. <laughs> anyway, his mom and I always got along back then. She, I was like 19 years old or something when I started working there, I think in 74, maybe late 74, early 75. And she was so sweet to me. She saw me as this pathetic young kid that she had to kind of protect from the big bad wolves. And uh, she always assigned me to great sessions and stuff. Anyway, Trevor, as as I said in the email that went out, um, would come home from school but not go home. He would go to the studio and hang out the reception desk or an office desk, anywhere he could find, and allegedly, as I said in the letter, (laughs) do his homework, but uh, he was around rock and roll history virtually every day of his life, and here he is all these years later. Um, I I literally, and I'm not just trying to suck up to him, uh, but all of us who work there have a very strong emotional connection to the place. We take a lot of pride that we work there and that we made lifelong friends there. And there's not a single one of us that would not, if we could pick anybody in the world to run that place, you're looking at them on the other side of your screen. So uh, great that, I don't know, just, yeah, you know, I hope you're there forever and I'm really proud of what you're doing there. But let's, It feels like
1: forever already. What? It feels like
0: forever already. Yeah. How long have you been uh, VP and GM?
1: Oh, I don't know about the titles, but uh, I started out helping the the cleaning guy and running, you know, doing errands and, you know, stuff like that. And then started full-time answering the phones when I, the day after I graduated high school when I was 18. Went wow. to uh, college, took me 10 years working nights and weekends, going to the school, I mean, going to school nights and weekends, uh, took me 10 years to graduate and a uh, degree in telecommunications management, uh, business administration, and a history minor, which basically qualifies me to deliver mail.
0: <laughs> well, you'd get really good benefits um, as opposed yeah. to being in the music industry. <laughs> um, and
1: you get to wear the little shorts and not and that too, so.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's hard to explain to people that have never been inside of a world-class studio. Which criteria is? By the way, it's based in North Miami, um, and it it's now one of a handful of world-class large console, large format console-based studios. Um, it's hard to imagine. I mean, it's one thing to walk into one and and look at it and look at all the gear and the pretty lights and all those faders. It's another thing to to work there. There's especially a criteria. Um there's a, a sense of incredible pride in the quality of the work that's done there and how well the place is maintained, um the level of customer service, the anything you can dream of, we will get done for you attitude. And uh do you want to talk about some of the strangest things people have ever asked you for? Well, yeah, I mean, I don't,
1: (laughs) I don't know that that would be fit for all audiences, but uh, it it pretty much runs the the spectrum for, you know, anything you could imagine. Uh, You know, and it goes, goes back to the early days as, as you well know. Um, You know, I would, I would kind of shy away from that.
0: Yeah, we can we can code it a little just in case. And we don't get a lot of kids watching, but occasionally we do. So, you know, we don't have to talk uh, you about...
1: You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, all manner of uh, refreshments, legal and otherwise, <laughs> obviously. Uh, uh, you know, companionship, uh, you know, if you know what I mean. Um, you know, uh, uh, Oxygen. I uh, can recall specifically one day doing a, a Jimmy Page, David Coverdale record. And Jimmy decided he wanted to play harmonica but was out of shape so he wanted to have an oxygen tank and mask on standby just in case he got a little too enthusiastic so uh, and who knew you had to have a prescription to order oxygen Found wow out i didn't know paper. that Like Thank- yep wow medical company wants a prescription yeah so you know uh, yeah all, all manner of things from you know uh, basketballs to you know, blankets and you know Whatever it is somebody wants to do, you know, we're here to facilitate it. One of the things I'm fond of saying is we're a five-star hotel. We just happen to make
0: records. And really good records. Um, I remember the first time I ever pulled into the parking lot as an employee on day number one. I'd just blown up the engine on my little Triumph Spitfire, and I was driving a green Gremlin uh, from Rent-A-Wreck. And I pulled into the parking lot, and uh, Steve Klein was moving a 24-track from uh, Studio A side of the parking lot over to the lobby of Studio C. And he points at me and does the roll-down-your-window thing, and he goes, you the new guy? And I said, yeah. He goes, get the fu- <laughs> get out of your car. Whoa, there's something I rarely do in the show. Get out of your car and take this machine over. I said, what do I do with my car? He said, leave it there. <laughs> yeah. Um I moved
1: more more machines than I can count, and the, the real bummer is when we opened the studio on the second floor with no elevator. You haven't lived till you humped a twenty four track up the stairs. Whoa, so that's uh, that's pretty large. Thank or God. we had actually uh, we were doing a a, a Madonna concert for someone in Tokyo or something, and it came in on a Sony thirty three twenty four. We had to rent a forklift and lift it up to the second floor and take it off the forklift and then get it into the studio. So. That was an ill-designed design, Ill uh, decision, but we made it happen.
0: <laughs> I remember that machine. It was like half the size of a large refrigerator. The bottom half of a large refrigerator weighed a ton. But you can edit 24-track digital or 48, depending which machine you got. Edit the tape with a razor blade with zeros and ones on. I think it was the only machine ever that you could do that on.
1: Yeah, well, it's, uh, and now they're boat anchors. We've got two... The thirty three forty eight HRs that were like
0: 200, they're probably five grand a piece if you're lucky. Wow, well, yeah, who would need it? You got Pro Tools. Um, so, look, you, you've been around great musicians, great artistry, great songwriters, great producers, to the point where maybe you're numb about it, maybe you're not, I hope you're not. But in your opinion, as somebody who's never been a songwriter, but you've certainly been in enough sessions that got to hear, and you've gotten to hear songs when it was just a rhythm track or maybe a guitar vocal demo and eventually became a hit. Any uh, input, any observations from you as an outsider who's a real insider to the process? What do you think makes a hit song?
1: Well, I, and uh probably throughout the course of this i'll mention his name uh more than once but and i know you know and love him as we all did uh tom dowd um i was having a conversation with him one day which is super easy to do yeah and uh uh, tom basically gave me the quote you know what are the three things that make a hit song the song the song and the song so you know there, there you have that but um my, what I, would, uh, what I would direct the viewers, listeners, whatever the appropriate terminology is to, is there was an Italian uh, composer, very famous, very successful, named Adriano Celetano, C-E-L-E-T-A-N-O, and in, I think it was probably the late 60s, created a song that is basically almost entirely gibberish, It was sung in English, or what the Italian consumer believed was English, and uh, the only three words, or two words, were all right, which was actually discernible and actually English, but it was actually uh, just the groove of the song that was so impactful and so very cool. You can see it on YouTube now, and if you're listening to, to the song, You'll understand what i say when and this is a quote from another uh, uh a guitar player named uh, uh dan warner who's since passed away but lovely human being fantastic top first call guitar player uh the groove is everything so i would have to say the groove is everything and it's all about the song so uh, there's a million songs that have been made that are out of time or off beat or need you know vocal help or whatever it is but there's something special and the groove is everything.
0: I was vacuuming the lobby of Studio C my very first week at Criteria and let's see, Tommy Dowd and Arif Martin were playing on the Nippet pinball machine and they were in a death match. And I walked up like a dumb, naive rookie, it turned off my vacuum cleaner. I was already annoying the hell out of him, and I said, Excuse me. You guys look like you know what's going on. How do you make a hit record? (laughs) They just looked at me like, for this, you interrupted our pinball machine, our pinball game. And Tommy Dowd, being the cool guy that he was, looked at me and then looked out the window, kind of down the street at either the apartment building across the street or uh, PBS. There was used to be a PBS station down like a quarter of a mile from you guys. And, And there were some warehouses there. And he said, look, on the other side of this wall, and if I'm not mistaken, they were doing Do You Think I'm Sexy with Rod Stewart? And you could hear the thumpy bass line coming through the back wall of C's control room. And they said, on the other side of that wall, we've got one of the greatest artists that's ever lived. We've got the best session players money can buy, the best studio money can buy. Everything the best, but we don't know if we're making a hit record and somewhere in that warehouse down there at the end of the block is a kid with a teak four track and he's making a hit record do you know why and i went uh-uh. he said because he wrote a hit song that's how you make a hit record
1: <laughs> absolutely and and to to that nip pinball machine that you mentioned which i i spent many misspent hours in my youth playing when i wasn't supposed to be here i was supposed to be someplace else but when you mentioned how oh you're jaded or this and that yes admittedly i am but a lot of it goes back to that pinball machine i was i was playing in the lounge that pinball machine and the door was propped open in studio c and they were working on saturday night fever and we're doing like pilot vocals or, or writing or something and i was out there playing and Somebody came storming out of the control room, read me the riot act to get out of there. So to this day, I'm super hesitant about impinging upon an artist's space, bothering people when they're working, going into control rooms uninvited, you know, and learned that the hard way. So I, I was terrorized from a young age.
0: Well, good etiquette, you know. Uh, and is, I think that the reason criteria was and is so special and the, the studio high-level studio industry uh, on the whole um, is that you get half a dozen staff engineers um, and a, a staff of support people all working under the same roof. And they all have learned that etiquette and that respect about staying out of each other's control rooms unless they've been invited. But it's the stuff that happens back in the tech shop. At 2 o'clock in the morning, which we won't talk about some of that stuff (laughs) that happens in the tech tech shop. (laughs) (laughs) I can remember one techie back in my day that used to drop acid and go back there and fix, you know, motherboards all night long, high on LSD. But that's a whole other thing. Anyway, it's the hanging out when the sessions have wrapped and the artists have gone home and everybody's just like, wow, that was a 16 hour day. And they're hanging out. It's like, you should hear the bass sound we got. And everybody will, would go into like the control room of B and listen to something that Ron and Howard Albert did that had a great bass sound. And then they would pull out like Stevie Wonder Inner Visions uh, on vinyl and say, come on down to the mastering room. And, and Alex Sadkin would put that on and we'd listen in the mastering room comparing that bass sound to what we just heard in the control room of B. So there was all this... Exchange of information, an exchange of techniques. And while all the guys were competitive, they were also very... Um, Collaborative. So, yeah, yeah, and supportive of each other. They wanted to see other guys win Grammys and have platinum records, but they were competitors. So I think that that's lacking in the world today. With everybody, you know, in home studios on a laptop, in a spare bedroom or down in the basement... They're isolated from, uh, the night you and I hung out after uh, the first night of the reunion, we were hanging out in a, it reminded me so much of what used to, you know, hanging out with, with Carl and Albie after they rapped on a BG session or whatever. It's just like we were a family and we all got excited about sharing stuff. So it's sad that more people can't enjoy that feeling.
1: And uh, yeah, I mean the the democratization of the recording, songwriting, production workplace has has in large part, I think, s- taken that away. Uh, you know, people it used to be people would come and would gather in Criteria. There would be an exchange of of ideas, an exchange of creative fluids, if you will. There would be you know a lot of of interaction and bouncing ideas and it was a very collaborative and very collegial now it's super competitive and everybody wants to to work in their own bubble and I, I think that distinctly that there is a, uh, a component that lends itself to making something that's better than can be made by one person in an isolated environment through Through teamwork, through interaction, through bouncing ideas, through letting the cream rise to the crop, the cream rise to the top, uh, interacting with your peers and, and, you know, working out your ideas and, you know, uh, all going towards the same goal. Uh, one of the things that 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 I can see that's that's concrete that, that exhibits that is the studio The studio used to have, you know, uh, it was a few rooms or whatever and there was a lot of common areas or whatever And you would see Stephen stills playing bass on a, you know, a Bee Gees record mm-hmm. You would see Dwayne Allman doing a, a record uh, playing guitar on the Sam the Sham record, you know the, it, These things would happen Uh, uh, organically and people would generally have an affinity for other people's music and what they were doing and what they were trying to accomplish. And they were open and they hung out. Now it's every room has its own private entrance. It has its own private restroom. It has its own private lounge. Uh, And that became, you know, people want to come in and have a beef with this posse. People want to come in and, and, and I'm too cool. You can't look at me. You can't talk to me, you know, it's a uh, it's a different kind of animal. I mean, obviously there are exceptions, and then there are extremes to the rule. But out of necessity, you know, I, I that has transpired, and and from a structural standpoint, this, that's kind of how the studio is designed now. Um, and I, I, you know, it, it's a shame, but I understand it. And like rap music, I'm not a huge rap fan, but I have to know. You know who who the players are who the producers are who the the musicians the writers the man you know all of those things or whatever but also i've got to know who's got to be have a beef with somebody else whose recording experience is going to be lessened by having to worry about is this guy have an issue with me or did he you know call me out on an album or a record or what you know so it's 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 kind of it's a different different time in a different era
0: wow you know i gotta say Never crossed my mind. I can't even imagine. Uh, that's got to be tough because I mean, you could have like a, an in-house war. I mean, oh, do, do people show up with weapons? Like some of the posse members? Do you think smuggling? If they, and- do,
1: if they do, they get sent back home. You know, uh, and it's it's an uncomfortable thing. It's a you know, it's it's very difficult. It shouldn't happen. Uh, you know, people should. I mean, we have security and you know all of that, but. You know, it's it's just it's not cool, and and we try and tell people. I was having a conversation with ownership, you know, recently, and was like, you know, I want to put together a list of of booking protocols or or you know, just protocols to put it on the website to have people, you know look, when you want to book a session, you know, these are things that are important to know. You know, these are things important to communicate, to have the most productive session, to have the most, you know, beneficial, the most comfortable, the you know, the best session you could possibly have. And I, and I mentioned, well, you know, if we put on there, you don't have guns there. And they're like, well, what are people going to think if we've got to put something in writing and say, don't, don't have, bring guns to the studio. I mean, it's like, well, there's a lot of idiots out there and, you know, it, 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 it shouldn't, it shouldn't be, be at that point, but you know, we've got to make sure that everyone is safe and you know we're professionals and this is a creative environment it's not a you know it's not a whatever
0: yeah wow that's that's really sad to hear it's like the opposite of i mean the only control rooms you knew when it was not a good time to go into a control room like i always had a rule later in life when i was gone from criteria, no roadies in my control room unless invited. And I would give them the same respect. When I got backstage passes to a show, I wasn't wandering around. I found a way to get out of the way, be up against a wall where they can run by me, grab whatever they need, um, Simzik, Bill Simzik, who uh, first big record he made a Criteria, I believe, was one of these nights by the Eagles. And he had a rule that even the band itself wasn't allowed in the control room when he mixed. He would get it to a point and invite all the band members in with a yellow legal pad and say, OK, each of you write down two or three things that you noticed, give it to me and leave. And he would look and go, oh, that's valid. Glad you brought that up and incorporate that. Nah, that's personal ego. He wants wants his guitar solo louder. Uh, but right, that's right. that was like the only kind of strict rule. Guys like Tommy Dowd, Arif, Carl Richardson, Don Gaiman, as long as you were respectful and understood that they were in a moment of extreme concentration and, and didn't do anything to break that, they were cool with you being in the room. But at the end of the day, when we all got together, it was the best. Um, have you noticed any traits that superstars share I mean you know what before we go down that road just list off some of the records I mean it's I I can't even do it and I look at the list two or three times a year still can't believe it
1: yeah it's just it just goes on and on as a matter of fact maybe I'll I'll, I'll send it to you Uh, I started coming up with a link Spotify link a playlist of all the stuff that's been done here, or select stuff that's been done here, recorded, mixed, master, or whatever, and I think it's at, like, four days in duration or something insane like wow. that. You know, hundreds and hundreds. And I'm still finding stuff out, uh, you know, that, that oh, we did a Donny Hathaway record? I, I, I wasn't aware of that, you know? He ain't heavy, he's my brother, or what, you know? I mean, it, it just... You know, crazy iconic stuff of every style of music, whether you're talking, you know, Latin stuff you're talking death metal we you're talking about R&B, soul, uh, you know, pop, obviously rock jazz. It's just the, the list goes on and on and on. So, um, you know. I give you an idea. I mean, um, in the last week, last weekend, uh, Springsteen was here doing a duet with Sam Moore for uh, for a new album. I guess it's a covers album or something. But Sam's wife called me and was like, actually, Sam's wife emailed my mother through Facebook, <laughs> and it's, it's Sunday afternoon or something. We got something really big, and Sam wants to come to the studio. You know, I- I'm sorry to bother you. Can you get a hold of Trevor? You know, whatever. And so eventually we hooked up or whatever. But not because she, she emailed my mother on Facebook, but she called, you know, <laughs> but uh, uh, Lil Nas X was just here, you know, if, the, if you can't get, you know, different, uh, uh, diametrically opposed from that, um, you know, uh, it, like I said, metal stuff, I mean, from, you know, whoever, anybody who is anybody, you know, if, if you're coming through town and you've got a day between shows or whatever, we typically will get the call. Um, you know if you want to get away from you know uh, recording in LA or New York or family issues or friends or record label beefs or whatever it is because it's not in New York or in LA or in Nashville people will typically come here Um, you know God forbid you want to do something that has a Latin flavor you know everybody I've got people coming from from Japan and from the UK and whatever oh we want a Latin flavor you know they'll want to come in and soak up the atmosphere bring in some monster players you know stuff like that so you know it, it, it's it it is everybody i mean we do a huge percentage of rap now and it tends to be cyclical i mean back in the day it was all it was all soul starting off with soul then it was all rock for decade after decade then it was you know dance disco stuff whatever then it was B. then it became you know rap so and we do you know all kinds of rap from people from all over the world from you know France and uh, uh, Israel, you know, uh, you know, the United States, uh, Mexico, huge, you know, uh, Puerto Rican, Colombian, you know, a lot of reggaeton stuff through through the roof. So, you know, if odds are if somebody sells five, 10 million records, you know, they're probably either a client or are in the room currently.
0: I I put in the letter, and I'll see if I can do some more beyond this, but the Eagles did a substantial body of their work there, starting with uh, Hotel, or no, starting with one of these nights, and then the majority of Hotel California was done there. Um, and
1: actually, the song Hotel California, I recall Bill telling me that it was recorded like, I don't know, 21 times or whatever, that the final time that they actually got it right was in Studio C.
0: Nice. And he loved that room. Uh, and it's funny because Studio C has the smallest actual recording room, live room of any of the rooms, I believe. Under Well, D didn't exist when I was there. All, all we had was A, B, and C, and C had the smallest live room. Uh, and, and it was in an era where everybody was looking for purity and no distortion. Like, God forbid if you had distortion on your kick drum or your bass you'd spend it you know all your efforts trying to get it out and nobody had live rooms back then it, it we i worked on a record with carl in a reef i believe a band called mama's pride from st louis Amit's limo broke down outside of a bar called the rusty spring saloon and he went in with his driver to call and get like triple a And he loved the Southern rock band that was playing there. And uh, he signed them the next morning over breakfast and brought them to Criteria. And they got there and they said, the room's too dead. We need it to sound like where we play. We, We need to feel our amps and feel the drums. So we literally ordered in a truckload of four by eight sheets of plywood covered the entire carpeted floor uh, with plywood, ran plywood up the wall, you know, tilted it up on end, so there's eight an eight-foot-high perimeter plywood around the room. Um, anyway, I digressed. Uh, let's see, I Shot the Sheriff was done there. Well,
1: I want stories along those same lines. I, the, the room is too, too dead or too live. Oh, yeah. And, and now, for the record, you know, we've got Big rooms, small rooms, live rooms, dead rooms. So there's a reason Baskin Robbins has 31 flavors. So we've got a (laughs) bunch of different live rooms or whatever. But I was uh, probably 1995 or so, uh, still had answering machines. So I had an answering machine message. I woke up in the morning, played back my message. It was the assistant engineer. We're doing a Jimmy Page, David Coverdale, Same album for the uh, oxygen tank, by the way. And I got a message from my assistant. Hey, it's four o'clock in the morning. Jimmy thinks the room is too dead, Studio E. So we ripped all the carpet out. I hope that's okay. And I came in the next morning and all of the carpet and all the foam padding was piled up in the parking lot. (laughs) Record ended up being great and Geffen bought us wood floors. So there you go.
0: Nice. Um (laughs) I had to call your mom once. Uh wake her up, if memory serves. I was the second engineer on an album that started out as Stills Young, then became Crosby, Stills, Nash and & Young, and then became Stills & Young again. And Don Gaiman and I, <clears throat> And I believe Alex Sadkin were there for 37 days straight without leaving the building. I had people bringing me grocery bags with changes of clothes because Crosby and Nash would work a 12-hour day and then Stills and Young would come in and work a 12-hour day. And the only time all of them were there is if they were cutting tracks, which they did pretty much full band live in the room. Um, Anyway, everybody was taking a break. Everybody went home and Stills, in, in a incredibly sensitive moment came up and put his arm around me and said, You live like over an hour away. I think at the time I was living off a of southwest 160th in Perrine or something. And he said, You live like an hour away, right? And I said, Yeah. He goes, Why don't you come back and crash. I'm renting a mansion on Miami Beach. Come back and crash at my place. Well, wow, thanks, Steve. So I go back to his place. About an hour or two later, I'm sleeping on a couch on the like right when you walk in the door. I couldn't even make it upstairs. And he's shaking me and I opened one eye and went, oh crap, what do you want? And he goes, I got an idea for a song. We need to go in a room. And I said, I don't want to disturb any of Don's stuff on the console. He goes, call Margie, get another room. So I called your mom, woke her up. It had to be two or three o'clock in the morning. I'm sure it wasn't the first time she got woken up during those hours. And said, Marg, I need a room. Stills wants to go cut something. And she goes, with what? And I said, just him and a guitar. All right, use Studio C don't use more than three faders stay away from anything that's set up on the console and I barely knew how to run a console at that stage in my life and had to sit there with stills doing down down and down 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 over and over and over for hours anyway so yeah your mom you have become your mom because you're that three o'clock in the morning phone call we need to take the carpet out um oh yeah whatever it takes
1: well yeah that's i think that's the 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 catchphrase whatever it takes yeah i mean and you know 37 hours straight you know it's uh, it doesn't happen as frequently as it used to but it still happens uh i, I was actually reminded of it the other day um we did a, a missy elliott album uh i think it was called the cookbook and she uh, uh somewhere in the credits made uh, uh alluded to you know thanks for the bedroom or words to that effect, thanks for the bed or something like that. And my girlfriend was a little bent out of shape about it. But no, it was basically because she and Timbaland were here for these marathon sessions. And she was like, man, I I can't drive back to my house and then come back here. You know, so we, we, you know, we built outfitted a room with, you know, a bed and stuff and, you know, blankets or whatever. And she would go in there and crash when she was toast and then get back up and, you know, try and keep up with those guys. So it's, you know, it's a it's a recurring theme.
0: Yeah, probably less. I mean, the, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would imagine the cocaine scene in Florida has calmed down quite a bit from what it was in like 75 through 82. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, back then the entire city was fueled with cocaine.
1: Well, the, uh, uh, there's a saying that the, the the skyline was built by the import and export business
0: in South Florida. <laughs> At the car dealerships, oh my gosh! But that's a whole. We could do an hour on that. Um, Okay, so you've seen megastars. What What, what,
1: traits do do superstars share? Was your question? Yeah. Have have you noticed? There's There's, well, there's there's a fine line between genius and insanity, and a lot of these people, uh, I, I don't believe that you can stay on one side or the other of that line. For any extended period of time, if you're that close to it, I think you're bouncing back and forth. Um, you know, so, you know, the, everybody's a little a little weird, you know, um, like the technicians. You know, we've got a, a, a large staff of, of, of techs, audio technicians, electrical engineers and stuff. They're a little weird, too. You know, it's a certain mindset. It's a certain... Predisposition and, you know, for, for and we're talking superstar, we're not talking, you know, uh, singer, songwriter, somebody wants to play on the weekends. Or what, I mean, we're talking people at the top of their game that are, you know, j- uh, almost unparalleled. And, and, you know, I think that, that aside from the, the genius and insanity, I think that an overwhelming belief in themselves, um, you know, because they can see where 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 their ceiling is. They can see, you know, what they can become, what they can do. They have the belief in it. They have the vision. And I don't think that necessarily everybody else shares that. So I think that a lot of those things are, um, are really, uh, are really present in the people that have reached
0: that level of, of uh, superstardom, if you will. Um, And producers, you've watched a lot of the people on Criteria's staff go from, being a, a gopher, you know, go doing pizza runs and carrying trash out to becoming assistant engineers to becoming first engineers. And then someday, some artist that's working with them says, you know, you contributed a lot. I'd like to make you a co-producer on this record. And that's the the, the launching pad for the rest of their career. Um, have you noticed any similarities? Because so many of the people watching today are home producers. Um, any similarities amongst the people that you've watched grow up into world-class producers?
1: Well, I, you know, it, it, first of all, I think that uh, the idea of a producer, in order to answer that question, I think you've got to look at the idea of what a producer is. If you ask 100 people today online, what does a producer do? you're going to get a dramatically different answer than what in my mind a producer does or what in my experience a producer does. Um, and a lot of it has to do with, uh, the genre of music as well. Um, uh, particularly urban stuff. You ask, what does a producer do? He makes the beats. Um, which in, in my mind as a, as you know, an old guy is nonsensical.
0: Right.
1: Um, <laughs> you know, uh, i i think you know in terms of your question about how people moving up and and whatever i think the one thing that all of those people share with with 100 accuracy is the opportunity mm. nobody without the opportunity nobody becomes anything like that um you know so you you have to you the, the best ability to make a successful producer is availability so if you're not in it, you can't win it. So you've got to you've got to keep at it. You've got to put yourself in, in the best position possible with the people you're writing with, the people you're collaborating with, the people you're learning from, the people you're listening to, the people you you hang out with. You know, all of those things uh, uh, comp- com- conspire to create an opportunity. Um, another thing, I, I interviewed a couple people today for for entry level. Pro- jobs one of the things that i'm i'm fond of saying and i say it in every interview that way i can say well you know i didn't said it to you i didn't say it to you or what have you but uh do you know who wally pip is mm. that's part of the reason wally pip wally pip was a first baseman played for the new york yankees got sick one day hey i don't think i can play no problem we'll put your backup in the backup's name was Garrig. Mm-hmm. nobody ever heard from wally pip again wow so The unique, you know, the most important ability is the availability. So when I tell my people to come in and I'm I'm interviewing or whatever, I can't reach you. You never know what opportunity you're going to miss. So you need to be there. You need to be ready to work. You need to be available when we call you because, like I said, we're a five-star hotel. You know, we have a concierge service. You need something. We take care of it, you know, and unfortunately, you know, if you're not in it, you can't win it. So so that's that's great observation what in terms of what great great producers share or or, what have in common um and it's kind of a non-answer but i mentioned him before tom Dowd, um obviously in my opinion the greatest producer of all time and the reason for that is because he did a wide range of of music from you know john coltrane to the allman brothers to rod stewart to on and skinner to you know whatever on and on and on aretha yeah exactly you know one of the things that 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 I noticed that and I believe made Tom the the best producer or made him into the legend that he was he was a different producer for every artist if you had the almonds were in making a record he would be the guy the disciplinarian that would go get Greg drag him back from the strip club sit him in a chair and say, sing, you bastard. Um, (laughs) He was the guy that if Aretha decided that the piano didn't sound good because it didn't have a Marcella's pizza box sitting on it so she could eat pizza and play at the same time, he would convince her that that wasn't necessarily the case. But if it makes you feel better, we'll go to Marcella's. Um. You know, he was the, the guy that could go out drinking with the, the the guys in the band. He was one of the band. He was the father figure. He was the disciplinarian. He was an arranger. He was a producer. He was uh, uh, an, an engineer, uh, you know, uh, a technician, coming up with, you know, uh, 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 faders as opposed to rotary knobs. I mean, for God's sake, the guy was on the Manhattan Project. But yeah. he brought something different to every production he was on, and he was able to identify what it needed. What kind of kick in the ass does this vocalist need to get over the hump to perform? What type of, of coddling might this person need? This person doesn't have the belief in themselves. This person is too influenced by you know uh, uh, fan letters. Whatever it was, Tom would identify what was needed and provide that and become a chameleon and elicit the optimum result for whoever he was working with.
0: I had the privilege of working, and I underline the word privilege many times, italicize it, bold it, all that stuff, put it in all caps. Anybody who ever worked with that guy for more than a day or two would understand the word privilege. He gave me so many pointers, maybe the most poignant pointer of all was get out of the way until they need you. That's the best thing you can do with an artist is get out of the way until they need you and be ready with the right answer. And I watched him. I got to work on... I was the assistant to Steve Gursky uh, on There's One in Every Crowd for about a week as they were wrapping up that record. That was the first time I worked with Tommy. Um, It was just amazing how he could read a room. That was his talent, was reading the room and doing exactly what you're saying. No what it needed when it needed it and being able to always deliver it whether it was a pizza box or a new arrangement he actually taught me how to edit i don't know if i've told you this story but um, we're working with uh clapton brought two guys named tom and don that were like a couple of beach bums, hanging out behind his house in the bahamas Clapton discovered them. They put themselves there to get noticed. He he fell for it. They were talented. He brought them to Criteria, signed them to his production company. They were going to do a record on RSO. We were in Studio B, and everybody was going to dinner, and I was starving, and I was so excited to get some food in me. And Tommy looks at me and goes, you want to learn how to edit? And I went, now? And he goes, yeah, now. So everybody else left. There I am sitting in the control room, and there was a song think it might have been called Better Things, remembering that from 38 years ago or something. Uh, whatever it was called, it had a drum turnaround, like a three count, brrr, four count, brrr, coming out of the bridge going into the last chorus. And Tommy said, I'm going to show you how to make a good song into a great song with a razor blade. Sit down at the machine. And I'm sitting, (laughs) just my palms are sweaty. I look like the guy in the movie Airplane with sweat dripping down my face. I've got one of the greatest producers that has ever lived standing literally at my back watching me go, Uh, 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 rocking the reels back and forth and I'm taking the grease pencil my handshake and I'm trying to mark where it where I should cut it and he goes oh dear god you're killing me here you know and and he showed me a trick of just taking a little grease from the side of your nose put that little smudge on the tape he said you don't need a grease pencil your face is full of grease (laughs) so anyway uh, he had me pull that thing out and take it up to the beginning of the song so it was white leader, followed by boom, into the song, immediately got your attention and said, this is going to be a great song. That's the kind of guy Tom Dowd was, that he would take a 20-year-old kid and he could have gone to lunch with everybody, would have been paid for on the labels tab. He could have ordered, you know, $200 bottles of wine and just been the guy at the table. But instead, he deemed it was the right thing to do to stay behind and not be cool, and teach a twenty-year-old how to take a good song and make it into a great one—that was the essence of that man, I think.
1: And fifty years later, you're you're sharing that, and you're still talking about it.
0: Yeah, and I've passed along that ethos to every young person that's ever that I've ever hired. So much of what I've imbued, especially my assistant engineers. Uh, in my post-criteria years, everything I taught them, I learned from Tommy and Arif and Carl Richardson and Albie Galluton and all those guys, from Mac himself, from your mom, uh, everything. Um, I, I owe that place my entire professional life and probably my personal life to some extent as well. Um, you mentioned you earlier. Tommy? What? You want another Tommy story? yeah absolutely i could listen to those all day long
1: yeah because there's no shortage of them but so we upgraded we used to have mci equipment everywhere and now it's it's all ssl and you know this is probably geez 20 years ago or something um we're tearing out all of this old mci junk and and nobody wants it it's like you know some because we on the street from mci they used to bring over equipment and test it and stuff would blow up and start smoking and you know whatever so we always had like an abundance of like surplus bad stuff or whatever you know yeah. so we had this giant box of parts or whatever and tom came walking through the shop one day and he was like what, what is all that mess and was like oh it's a bunch of mci parts or whatever we're, we're gonna get rid of it we're gonna have to trash it or something we don't really have any use for it or whatever and he said oh no you see, can't do that. You know, my friend Ray uses all that crap. You know, he let me give you his phone number, and you know, give him a call, and you can ship it to him and get rid of it like that. And I was like, outstanding or whatever. He gives me a slip of paper or whatever with, with Ray
0: Charles's phone number on it. Call my friend Ray. Send him that box of junk. <laughs> That's funny, um, and I bet you it was mostly repro, repro cards from the multi tracks. <laughs> yep, yep. the most, the weakest <laughs> point.
1: Yep, all kinds of crap. Um, well, that was tough too. It was just like you know, and you could be anybody and say, "Hey, Tom, how you doing?" And then three hours later, it was me and Clapton were on the boat, and you wouldn't believe, you know. And it was just, just a wonderful person, to, you know. Would talk to anybody.
0: Yeah, and and genuinely was interested. He wasn't doing it to be a gladhander. The guy, I mean, he was king of the world that he would talk to a twenty-year-old. You know, what are you doing this weekend? Um, okay, so going back to great producer, or, or the definition of a producer, what they used to be back in my day, and I want to hear how they're different today, but back in my day, um, it was the producer interfaced with the a and person in the label, the producer managed the budget, uh, the producer decided, helped the band decide or completely decided which songs were going on the record, Producers interfaced with A&R people to, and managers to help find songs, bring them onto the project. The producer was the the father figure, the psychologist. Um, the Could have been the engineer as well, or if not, the person who sat next to the engineer and said, I think we need more bottom end on that kick. This song really calls for that. Um, so the producer back then was kind of like a movie director and a movie producer rolled into one person what is a producer now
1: it depends it depends on the genre um it it really does and it also interestingly enough depends on their level of success um i mean if you've got a a a rick rubin in a room and he said no do it like this or whatever Okay, you know, I'm I'm listening to you. You know, he he he's got the clout to make it happen. If it's a a a, a producer, and because if you know, the, I think that if, for example, 20 or 30 years ago there was you know 500 producers in the world, there's now 5 million, you know, or 500 yeah. million or whatever, you know. So so everybody uses the terminology very loosely. Back in the day, if you were a producer, it means you earned your stripes. It meant you came up through the bottom, you learned, you know, you you probably played an instrument, you could probably read music, you could probably look at a general ledger, you could probably determine, you know, uh, how much money you were going to allocate for housing and, you know, you were involved in the budget, You you know, all of those things or whatever. Whereas now, a producer might just be a guy who cranks out a beat and it gets sent to the artist Nobody sees the producer again. The producer's vision is not one that's complete or whatever. It's just some guy who made up a beat and sent it to somebody and made fifty bucks, twenty-five k, whatever it is. Um, you know, so that was a producer. Um, the producer may or may not be present in the studio <clears> producing. <throat> Of course, there may be a vocal producer now who's working on, you know, the pronunciation, who's working on the phrasing, who's working on the breathing. But now there's, you know, there's vocal producer. There's people that tune vocals specifically to make you believe that you know what you're doing. Uh, there's, you know, uh, there's there's a million steps between start and finish. Take a look at, and I don't know if it's available online, but take a look at the Grammy Awards, the listing for Song of the Year. How many producers are listed for each one? How many writers are listed for each one? You know there how do producers- they even
0: get paid back in our day, my day because I preceded you, it was you know usually you got anywhere between five grand and fifty grand upfront front at, for yourself as the producer and usually two points of gross retail on the record. How do they get paid now when when a producer is a, a young person who just makes a beat and then hands it, it- off? It depends on the artist. Sometimes they get paid when they sue, and the release of the album
1: has to get held up because they, somebody copied a a, a a a sample that's not cleared, and then they want to come back to the producer and look at well, where did the you know? Uh, sometimes they they're you know they they don't sign the split sheets. Uh, sometimes you know so it's just yeah. and now it's the ent- level of entry to be a producer to be a songwriter or whatever is the bar is so low. That there are other things that go along with that, not having necessarily legal representation, not having the juice to, to, to stand your ground and be compensated like you, not having the, you know, the, the, the writer splits. I mean, there are producers that I've worked with and that are world famous that basically consist their job consisted of ordering lunch. And then they would leave and show up once and then suddenly they they co manage the artist. Suddenly they're they're getting producer credits, they're getting writer splits, they're getting all these things. It depends on, on who you are. Um, you know, and, and in these days, you know, I, I I don't know how many producers can read music. I don't know how many producers play an instrument or bang on an MPC or you know are really good at Ableton or Fruity Loops or Logic or whatever, and they create these things, but if they were given an instrument and sat in front of a crowd, they would be worthless and be unable to produce anything of, of note or certainly anything pleasing to listen to. So uh, the, the, the title or term of producer, I think, has de-evolved to the point now where it can mean virtually anything.
0: It's very sad because it, it degrades that climbing the ladder, learning the craft, and having pride of work, in your workmanship that we all experienced back in the day. And I don't want to be that old guy, you know, sitting around, well, back, you know, during World War II, I don't want to be that guy, but um, I it's still... All about-
1: gratification. I have people that come here that work for me to come out of schools or whatever and I've had people come from a million different schools. Some of them were geniuses and some of them were idiots or whatever but everybody wants to grasp the the golden ring as fast as possible. So people now are willing to make shortcuts. And the shortcuts, you know, people come here because they want to work with the best equipment. They want to work in the best acoustically viable rooms. They want to work on the with the best engineers, producers, and other people or whatever. But now you've got somebody making a beat at his house and need somebody to come in and engineer. They're going to make two or three times an hour what they're going to make here, doing all the grunt work, learning all the stuff. And people are are predisposed to jumping right over the hard and life of hard knocks and go make that twenty dollars or forty dollars an hour or whatever. Whatever it is, because it's they're, they're looking at the, the, the money and this is my big opportunity without any acknowledgement that, you know, there's a system in p- place in terms of apprenticeship, in terms of learning how things are supposed to be learning from the best. Everybody just wants to get out there and do it and nobody wants to take the time or effort and obviously not nobody, but you know what I mean? Yeah. But take the time and effort to get there. Instant gratification. You can record a record and have it, you know, on distro kid or on Spotify or SoundCloud or whatever, you know, miraculously almost instantly. Yeah. You know, and it, and it's, you know, that's, that's what the industry has become about.
0: Wow. You've depressed me, but it gives me hope that you're there. Um, yeah, back in my day, playing the old guy card again, you didn't get... And by the way, I am wearing a Criteria hoodie today in your honor, and I've got the logo right there sitting, Uh Logo on the back of the sweatshirt, but I've also got the Studio A background up with the big logo on the screen. Um, thank you for the hoodie. But you didn't get a t-shirt the day you started there. The Literally... Oh, no. That was
1: something you earned.
0: Yeah, you had to be there for at least 30, 60, 90 days and and have a vibe amongst your coworkers like this guy's not an idiot. He could be one of us. And when you pulled off something good, when you cleaned a room extra good or you cleaned a room that nobody asked you to or you wrapped cables uh, because you could either sit around and smoke weed out behind the building with the other guys, or you could be wrapping cables till two o'clock in the morning, you wrap the cables because it was the right thing to do. If somebody noticed that got you the T-shirt kind of like on. Uh, oh, God, what's the show right now with Kevin Costner? Um, oh, um. Yellowstone. Also, right. Yeah, the ranch hands, you you get branded, literally Great. branded. That means that you've earned the right to be a part of that very exclusive club. Nobody's bragging about it. They, Made uh, man. Yeah. World <laughs> World <laughs> World <of History. laughs> oh, man. Oh, God. I love everything about where you are. Um, anyway, so, okay, you're talking about people making music at home, you know, and, and you're right. Uh, anybody can watch YouTube videos, uh, even me. I must confess that a couple of years ago, I got a new laptop and I ordered it with Logic, and didn't I rarely have the time to sit down and learn it well, but this year, the week between Christmas and New Year's, uh, I sat down and uh, my wife was out of town and came back like on January 2nd, so I had a week to myself where things were kind of slow at the office. Um, I spent Christmas Day sitting in a laptop uh, with a microphone and acoustic guitar and Logic opened up and watching tutorials. Anybody can learn this stuff, but I realized as I was learning it, I've got the craft of how to EQ. I understand what microphones do. That's maybe my strong suit is microphones. I've got Carl Richardson to thank for that. so all the other people that are learning that don't understand the physics of a room, the physics of sound in general, don't understand the physics of reverb, uh, all the uh, delay, all those things that when you come up through the ranks and you learn from the best in the business, um, you can learn shortcuts on YouTube. And you can have somebody explain what a reverb tale is, all that stuff. But I can't believe... Well, you know what, Criteria's very existence is all the proof we need that at some point, even though people can get pretty far down the road and there have been some great records made in home studios, large format studios like Criteria exist. Why? Who? Who? What makes them get off the laptop and go, okay, we need to go to a big boy facility now because we can't do X or we need this?
1: Um, well, one, one, you, you mentioned um, uh, 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 appreciation of acoustics and the, the technology behind the, the uh, you know the the dynamics of reverb and you know early reflections and whatever else um, as things that you knew and learned that gave you a a, a leg up when you're doing stuff at home or production or what have you, but one of the things that you you didn't, or two three of the things you didn't mention was, and the the first one didn't come from here. You had to bring that uh, with you, but that's attitude. Mm. You've got to have an attitude to to know you don't know everything, to realize it, to accept it, and to be able to be open to learning. Um, If you watch something on YouTube and think you know everything, that's a problem. You know, so you bring an attitude to, to the table that, that doesn't, you know, that it doesn't get enough uh, significance placed upon it. Second thing is attention to detail. You're you're very precise. you're very attention to detail. I'm not going to get a Pro Tools session from you that's going to have, you know, 300 unnamed folders. I mean, files in it <laughs> or whatever. You know. I mean, that's just stupid housekeeping stuff. But it, 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 it exa- it's an example of, of, you know, higher and more important things is the attention to detail. And then the ability to communicate, to communicate, communicate what you do like, what you don't like, what you need, what you don't know, what, you know, whatever. So all three of those things that aren't, you aren't going to learn on YouTube. You're going to learn through the apprenticeship. You're going to learn through uh, being in, in stressful times, going through adversity, uh, doing a lousy job, getting screamed at, you know, all of those things happen. And that keeps the, the. The mythos oath, myth of the studio, the, the apprenticeship relationship, I think that keeps it going for when people go out on the, uh, and make their own records at home or go, you know, you go to these schools, these schools don't, engineering schools or whatever, they don't teach attention to detail. They don't teach attitude. They don't teach communication. They'll teach if you do Apple shift, whatever, this will happen faster than if you type in, you know, a 17 symbol, keystroke, or what, you know, whatever. They teach that so i think that that's an important consideration and you you give yourself not enough credit for those type of things and it's not readily apparent to somebody that may be watching this or whatever that those things are important
0: wow uh, I, I i'm you are well, my long lost brother you really are
1: <laughs> I, i'm waiting for that check um one of the things that i that i like to tell to tell people because you know obviously people will come through on a tour and you know uh, not understand well i can record at home you know uh why would i need to come here or whatever and um obviously the, the, there's things that are very apparent equipment very few people are going to have a nine hundred thousand dollar large fam- large format console at their house they're not going to have you know 50 different pieces of outboard gear at their disposal um you know another consideration is the acoustic environment Not only is it going to sound great when you cut big live drums in our Studio A through the SSL or whatever, but when you listen back to it and you're trying to make effective decisions to improve the stuff, is your monitoring correct? I had a client that came in here the other day and was like, oh, man, you know, I should hear more bass in the studio or whatever. How did it sound like when you got it in your car? Because that's facto, you know, listen, I'm going to go listen to my car. Oh, well, it sounds exactly like it's in the room. Exactly. The room is accurate. If you want to work in an environment that's all jacked up and has fake low end or whatever, it's not going to translate to the rest of the planet. So w- there's painstaking efforts to tune the rooms, to you know, replace components when they get fatigued, to check out different amplifiers, different uh, filters, uh, uh, A to D filters, you know, I, just all these different things. So there's, there's a tremendous amount of, of, uh, of, of equipment, acoustics. Uh, You know, those type of things. But when you come to a studio, I would say for the people out there that are songwriters or aspiring artists or what have you, like that type of thing, your physical physiology when you sit at home and you're writing a song and you're trying to do this or whatever, compare that when you go and you're sitting on stage and there's five people, 500 people, 5,000 people there listening to you perform do you perform exactly the same or did the butterflies maybe prompt you to perform in excess of what you believed you could? Does it, you know, uh, uh, is there a, a sense of urgency when you're at home in your boxer shorts, eating a ham and cheese sandwich and the dogs bark in the background and your friends over at three o'clock? Is there a sense of inspiration when you go in your garage or, As opposed, oh, this is where Streisand cut her vocals. Oh, this is where 25 million units for Hotel California were sold. Oh, this is where Justin Bieber did blah, blah, blah. This, you know, the list is endless. If you're inspired by music, which most people that are songwriters or musicians or whatever are, and you go into the hallowed halls of where that music that inspired you your entire life was created, there are still ghosts in the wall. They're still going to, your spine, you're, the hair on the back of your neck is going to stick up when you walk in the footsteps of greatness. And that's going to elicit a performance from you, whether it's trombone, God forbid, accordion, whether it's vocals, whatever, <laughs> it's going to inspire you to perform better than sitting in your house. This, which is not to say that uh, if you're writing a great song, that the song's not going to be great. But if you bring a great song in here, it's going to take it to its full potential, so it doesn't matter if you're you're a savant if nobody recognizes that and gives you the attention to to excel, you know, then you're not going to be what you could become. Um, there's no distractions. The focus, you're focused. I have people that will answer the phone for you, that will let you in the gate, that will clean up the garbage after you, will order you food, will bring the food to you, will clean up the food after you. I have people that will change the ashtrays, people that will make it colder or hotter. Whatever it is that you desire, you focus on the music, the writing, the creating, the vocals, the space. You want lights, you want colored lights, you want darker, you want lighter, you want colder, you want it hot, whatever it is. There's a staff of people that are making your, that are dedicated to making your experience here the most productive and the most beneficial that it can be.
0: I've got that at home. It's called Alexa. Yeah, Um, But Now, everything you just said was pure gold. The whole time I'm sitting there thinking, this guy's got to write the book because you just described perfectly that ethos, that all of the world's leading studios have. And we all had, I was the 11th studio to join SPARS, the Society of Professional Audio Recording Studios, when I had triad recording about 30 miles north of of Criteria. Um, All those studio owners that were the early members, Mac, Chris Stone, all those guys, they all shared that same, it's whatever a stronger word is than commitment to being a great facility. And I'm so friggin' proud of you because you totally get it and carry it on. I don't know if you got it squeezed into you by what the walls oozed into you, you know, through osmosis, or if some of that came from your mom or was handed down by, you know, older, wiser staff members when you were a puppy there. But this is why, I mean... Truth be told is Trevor was a kid when I was there, a little kid. Um, and I'm trying to think that. So what year was it that you graduated high school and started answering phones there? It's like
1: 1983.
0: OK, so I'd already been gone for seven or eight years or something. Um, how did you get all this? How did how how did, what imbued you with, with exactly, if I could find the words as articulately as you just did, I would say what you just said. Where did that come from?
1: Directly attributable to stealing roaches out of ashtrays from Black <laughs> Sabbath sections in high school. I think that's the, that's the key here. <laughs> wow. Well, I don't know, it's osmosis. I mean, I could talk to engineers about, you know, uh, Compressors being in bypass. I could talk to, you know, uh, you know, Nana Webbers to, you know, whatever. I could talk a, a good deal about uh, 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 equipment, pro audio equipment or whatever, but I, I never took a class or went to school for it or whatever. It's all entirely osmosis. It's doing things wrong, getting screamed at and yelled at, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, it's, you know, seeing the good, the bad and the ugly. I mean, you know, uh, and it's all through talking to people like Tom Dowd, talking to, you know, uh, having friends like you, you know, playing poker with, you know, Steve Klein and Eric Schilling and, you know, Joe Galdo. You know, it, it's uh, it's just a, a an accumulation of uh, interactions with, with people that I was blessed to be around.
0: And somebody in the chat room just said, Ozzy Moses. So... Here you go. Uh, Ozzy recorded there, Black Sabbath recorded a criteria while I worked there.
1: Technical Ecstasy at Studio B, and uh, uh, Heaven in Hell in Studio C.
0: So I was so leaving <laughs> Mac's office. There was like a, an upstairs, almost like an indoor bridge that connected the Studio C part of Criteria with the original A and B area in the original lobby. So I was leaving Mac, the, the owner's office one day, and I come out to walk down into the lobby of AB, and there's Ozzy sitting on the stairs, like third stair from the top. And and I said, excuse me, and he looks up and he mumbled something. I couldn't understand a word the guy said, not that that's surprising to anybody. Uh, and nothing's changed. Yeah, and he said, and he motioned like, sit down. And I'm like, uh, thank you, but I'm working. He goes, just sit down, you know. And so I sit down and he pulls out a bag of <laughs> pills that he offered some pills he fires up a fatty right there on the stairs back then you didn't do that out in public you know it's not like california now where it's legal recreationally i could i've spent like 20 minutes hanging out with him on the stairs could not understand literally one word that he said sweetest guy in the world could not understand a word um All right, I've got about 10 minutes to go before I have to bug out to go to my granddaughter's birthday party. So I'm going to cut a little short today. And don't let me forget, I am going to give away a Criteria t-shirt. Trust me when I tell you, wherever you go in the world, somebody is bound to walk up to you and say, Criteria, um, I've worn mine in Israel. And uh, I was actually wearing mine coming home from Israel this past December. And a an Israeli musician who had to be like 6'4", walks up to me in the airport and goes, you're Michael from Taxi. And I said, wow, I can't believe that, that I, I you know, somebody in Israel knows who I am. And he goes, Criteria, awesome studio. <laughs> it's like, wow, I hit the lottery with that guy, but he knew. So yeah, I will give away a t-shirt. Um, does, we talked about this earlier with, with the cross-pollination between rooms. Do people still get buzzed about a hit? We all knew back in the day, uh, when somebody had a hit record, when somebody just cut a rhythm track with a a pilot vocal in, you know, Studio A, at the end of the day, everybody would kind of filter into the room. I want to hear your hit, you know? And everybody was supportive. Wow, that is going to be a hit. First time I experienced that was, uh, I was working on the first Firefall album, You Are the Woman. Everybody under that roof knew immediately, and they were a, a brand new band. They were unheard. They were all experienced guys from other bands, but they were brand new to the world. Um, does any of that happen now, or are things so isolated with private studios, private bathrooms, all that—that that, that, that excitement that's shared and commingled amongst the different rooms still there?
1: Well, it 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 does happen, but it's much more confined to a fewer number of people because like for instance i mean there's there's a a a record we're making or an album we're making i hate that what people call a single song they call it a record i mean for me a record is a a record it was a compilation of 10 12 songs you know whatever so we're actually making an album for this this artist um and uh the assistant comes out and was like, you know, look, you're really toasty. You know, I'm gonna rotate somebody in. We're gonna take a day off or whatever. No, no, no. I I don't want any days off. I was like, well, yeah, I get you. Like the overtime. He said, no, this is an important. This is gonna be an important record. Um, you know, so it does happen. But when you've got, you know, Jay Z and Beyonce in the studio, it's like, you know, how can you tell when they're making a hit record when the vu meters are moving? You know, so <laughs> it's it's a matter that of- thing they're doing is gonna be a monster. I mean, we mixed a new single for Lil Wayne, which should be coming out, you know, uh, in a not-too-distant future or whatever. You know, uh, I only heard the intro and, you know, had a comment on the sample, but, um, you know, who knows, that might be, a, you know, a hit record. But the first time that, that I recall something like that and realizing it was Collective Soul, I think the song was December, they were in working in one of the rooms or whatever, and, you know, the door to the control room was open, and I was walking by, and it was like, I stopped. I had to stop and listen to it. I was like, wow, that's really cool, you know. Um, you know, so it, it, it really just depends. But when, you know, when Springsteen's in a room, you know, whatever singing or whatever, you can rest assured that something magical is going to happen. So when you get to that level, but, but typically everything is isolated. Nobody wants this person to hear their stuff or whatever. Uh, so much so that the album that the guy didn't want to be taken off of that, that they're actually next door, near the side of the wall recording. Um, they had an engineer, uh, who was replaced. So the new engineer came in but couldn't open the session up because they're using their own Pro Tools rig because they don't want any of their data on our Pro Tools rigs. And the the, the artist and the artist's assistant are the only one that knows the password. So we had to wait until we could find them until they gave the, the, the producer, the, I mean, the engineer till they gave him the green light and he was in the, the circle of trust and could open the files up on his own. So someone had to come in specifically and turn the file, the, you know, open the pro tool session for him.
0: Well, wow, Things so, are so different.
1: Well, I mean, another good reason is, um, like, uh, a pit bull. A pitbull was here one day for whatever reason or something. And, um, I was talking to him about, man, you haven't been here in a while. You got to come back or whatever, you know. And then, you know, he I don't remember what he said, but his manager came over to me and essentially said, you know, one of the reasons he won't record in commercial you know, studios or whatever is that there's always people around. There's people in the back of the room and nothing sucks quite as much as releasing an, an album or a song or something and then having somebody who brought him coffee or walked through the lobby or whatever while the song was playing, claimed that they were a co-writer on the track. Ugh. He said, so if I do stuff by myself and I'm in the studio or whatever by myself or whatever, nobody can come claim that they, they were there when I wrote the song.
0: Man, things really have changed and gotten depressing. Um, I got to walk 10 feet from my desk to get something to show you that'll put a huge smile on your face. Don't go away. <laughs>
1: Can't see if anybody's on the online chat, so, oh, nice, the vinyl. That's nice. I can't see if anybody's on the chat, so it might just be me, you, and my mother on the, on the stream. So.
0: No, there are over 100 people in the chat, I believe.
1: All right. Nice. Check this and out. I can't see. What does it say underneath the, uh, oh, the
0: logo? Uh, Neil Young Ruffs. Uh, oh, Criteria, the best studio in the country. And that was back in the, you know, this was probably 1977. I was working yep. at Triad Recording in Fort Lauderdale with Neil Young on the Comes the Time album, and we were going to Nashville or something very soon. And so we mixed a bunch of roughs, put them on quarter inch, and uh, he said, "Oh, why don't you go down to Criteria and see if you can get Alex to cut cut an acetate for me." Um, and bring that to Nashville. So this is the actual acetate of like four of the songs with just Neil Young and two or three of his guitars and vocals that made it to the record on this thing. But I've still got this from 1977-ish, maybe 78. (laughs) Wow, this has been amazing. Um, Can you come back in like a month or so? I, I feel so like, we didn't even come close. Well, we got to give
1: enough time for people to forget my stories, so I to regurgitate them.
0: Yeah, um, and I want to give the audience time to ask a question, but I can't be late for my granddaughter's birthday. But we will do a drawing right now um, for a Criteria t-shirt. Um, and how we're going to do this is you guys will type in a plus one. Um, don't type your name. Don't do it like 10 times. Come on, be fair. Just do it once. And, and Liz, who's sitting about... 50 feet away from me in another room is going to run her finger up and down the list and go bink. And whoever she lands on is going to get the shirt. So after you win, whoever you might be, email Liz at taxi.com. Tell her the size. I wear, like this hoodie is an XL. Um, and I generally buy them a little big and wash them. My Criteria t-shirt is an XL. Um, I weigh 176 pounds and I'm 5'9", if that gives you any idea for size. Anyway i will hit trevor up get a shirt um either have you know i'll pay him and get them to ship directly to you or he'll send it to me we'll get it to you it's gonna take a little while but you they, will... come in, they come in the original cream or now in black oh okay um which one is the best seller <laughs> uh it
1: depends it depends on your age range. if
0: you're old enough to remember the cream all right that's funny when um Oh, who who's your uh, CFO or your financial person? Who did uh, who did I talk Carlos? to? Yeah. I was talking, Carlos Bonilla, right? Carlos. I was, I was talking to him about where to send this one a couple weeks ago. And I said, Do you have any t shirts in stock? He right. goes, Yeah. Do you want um black or cream? And I said, Cream? And he goes, Yeah, like the originals. I said, No, when I worked there they were white and he goes, yeah, whitish <laughs> Yeah. Anyway,
1: and now they're cream the ones were actually with the three lines on them or whatever. But yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. That was Sorry. the my original one that I had said Criteria's Recording Studios, each in like an inch high font that went. But then the logo got bigger and Recording Studios went underneath it in a smaller font. But that's still vintage. Um, yes. Anyway, yeah. Um, Martin Gravel, one of the guys in the chat's going, what's Michael's size? Anyway, so here we go. We are going to do um, the thing starting now. Type in plus one. Liz will pick a winner. And while they're doing that, uh, Margie, if you're watching today, I love you. I miss you. Uh, Trevor's mom, like I said earlier, she was my boss back in 19, late seventy four, I think, when I started there. Um, she's like my big sister, my mother, and my boss kind of all rolled into one person. She's got the most sarcastic sense of humor that literally you cannot hang out with Margie and, and just shut your mouth and just laugh because that, she's so... She's Roseanne Barr, for lack of a better way to describe it. Um, she is. She, she, she could be completely inappropriate in the most endearing way, and I love her for that. But it, it tells you a lot about the place that all of us who were worked together back then, 35, 40 years ago, are still close friends now, even though we haven't been in the same room together other than the reunion that happened two or three years ago in decades, and yet we're all still friends that would take a bullet for each other. All right, the plus ones have stopped rolling in. Liz is probably going like this right now. I will find out momentarily who the big winner is. Brian Langill. Congratulations, Brian. (laughs) Um... Trevor, I cannot begin to tell you how much I've enjoyed this. And watching the people in in the chat are going, this is the best one ever. Um, I I, I love hanging out with you. You are everything Criteria deserves rolled into one guy. And I love the way you're preserving the ethos, the history, and still making great records under that roof. Um, I will call you. i got to dash off now to go to my granddaughter's birthday. But... um, I'll call you tomorrow or the next day and let's set up something for like a month from now where you come back and, and do more stories and do some audience Q&A. I
1: have to consult my social register, but I think I can manage it.
0: Awesome, man. Well, my love to you, to your mom, to any staff members that I might know, which is probably nobody at this point, but uh, just, I, I would come down, love to come down sometime and just meet your staff and just let them know if they don't already, how incredibly lucky they are um, to have you at the helm of that place. Uh, you're the you're the perfect guy and the only guy that could give it this much heart. And uh, just so proud of you and, and grateful that you were able to join me today. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Trevor Fletcher, live from beautiful Criteria Studios in Miami, Florida. Um, check it out. Uh, is the website back up yet? If
1: it's not today, it should be within a week because we we're trying to figure out a way to do the the the, the merch stuff online so and it, it got a little problematic with the the web provider so uh hopefully it should be but it's been 20 years since it's been up so I
0: <laughs> what's another a, day a little, a little, well bit, uh, how but, can people go online and check out the studio just so you know who knows i mean we've got so, world-class artists in taxi and uh they may need a real room to go mix a record or something so how do they find you on facebook it doesn't have to be world-class i'm
1: fond of saying talent is optional
0: (laughs) not under that roof buddy anyway trevor um thank you and i will see you soon thank you ladies and gentlemen thanks for joining us trevor fletcher You ready, Deb?